You're listening to the Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, Real Estate Runway family, I'm blessed to bring a dear friend of mine, Mr. Brandon Knox of Knox Team here in Nashville. This guy is a kick-ass broker. This guy is a land use and redevelopment expert. He's got some pretty unique ways he makes money, and now he's looking at building build-to-rent projects for himself. So I'm so excited for just the conversation we're going to have and how much you're going to learn just by listening to, to the way he set up his empire and how it's growing. So before we get into this, if you get any value out of the show, look, just interact with it. Like us, subscribe, forward it, pay it forward. All you got to do is leave a comment, subscribe, whatever you're doing. That will get it to more people like you. Pay it forward. All right, let's get right into the show. All right, all right, all right. Real Estate Runway family, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton. I'm joined today with my good buddy, Brandon Knox. Brandon and I were actually at a 1% Club event. It's a group of mindset and other Christian men that we get together and just kind of talk about our business and goals and all that. And we were just sitting there talking at the end, like, you know what, we should do a podcast. So here we are. We're going to have some amazing stuff to talk about today. Brandon is a force to be reckoned with in the real estate world. Brandon, welcome to the show, brother. How you doing? Man, I'm so glad to be here, Chad. Thanks so much. I'm doing fantastic, man. Feeling blessed today. Thank you. I'm glad to have you on the show here. So as we typically do, I know your story, but the listeners do not. So let's take a little time here. Let's go through what has made Brandon into the the Brandon he is today, because it's a very interesting story from where you started, what you built and what you're doing now. And then I think we'll spend a lot of the time on what the, some of the cool stuff you're doing today, but let's start there, brother. Absolutely, man. Well, we should try not to get to the, the boiled down version. So I, I grew up in Austin, Texas on a horse ranch. I got the opportunity to move to New York when I was young, 18 years old, just turning 19, moved to New York, went to school, Found my way into real estate through a long series of events, but I actually had the opportunity, the good opportunity to get picked up as a young guy, 25, just about to be 26, with the Corcoran Group. So I worked for, for Barbara Corcoran. If you ever watch Shark Tank, you've seen the show. And so I got a chance to work with her. Again. I love how how gently you said that, by the way. Yeah, just I worked with Barbara Corcoran for a little while. That's kind of- Well, a- by, <laughs> by the time I got, yeah, absolutely. By the time I got there, she had sold the company. She was still around some as a figurehead. I really worked more, more closely with her two, two sort of protégés at the time, yeah. which were Teresa Hall and Pam Liebman. Uh, Pam's actually still the CEO to this day, and it's been 15 years since I was there. Anyway, so I was working man in Manhattan doing new construction sales, mostly condos, townhomes, co-ops. And then we, we moved to Nashville in 2013. My wife had grown up here. We decided we wanted to raise our daughter down here and then not in Manhattan. And so uh, we moved here, but I kept working in Manhattan for two years. And so basically I would go back and forth every 10 days. If you were a client and you would call me up at night and like, hey, I'd like to see condos tomorrow. I'm like, I could probably meet you about 10 and then get on a plane, plane. <laughs> fly up there. So I did that for two years till we found out our second child was coming. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't keep going to Manhattan, leaving my wife with two young kids. And, and so I quit that and I started this development thing to sort of try to make up the, for the New York money that I was used to. But in terms of my story, I was doing brokerage there. We were pretty, pretty good at it. We actually, when my wife joined me, we became top 1% in the country in sales. We were selling a lot of units. Moved down here and we had been pretty big in the condo world up in Manhattan. A lot of people knew us. We had a name. So I kind of thought to myself, well, I'll move to Nashville. I'm going to take over the condo market, right? So I come down here. A couple of things were wrong with that vision. First off, there was like six or eight condos total at the time in, in downtown, in the Gulch and downtown. All of them had brokers that live there, preferred brokers of the sponsor, the developer, 
there had brokers that had bought units as investments and were, were using that as an opportunity to work the building. So it was saturated. And I quickly realized that I was going to starve if that was going to be my niche. And so I, I, I quickly reinvented myself as I, I've done a few times in the past. And I started seeing a hole in the market with uh, builders and developers. Specifically, what I noticed is most of the smaller guys, the guys that are doing five to 20 houses a year, they don't have somebody on staff that looks for dirt full time that they're paying a salary. And they're so busy for themselves that they don't really look for dirt until they're done with the current project and looking for a new one. So there were these huge gaps where a builder would buy some lots, build a house, sell the house, then look for more. And that'd be a year gap. So what I started doing was meeting every builder or developer in town that I could, coffee, lunch, whatever I could get, and learning who they were, where they liked to build, what product they liked, and kind of what their buy box was. And so I'd find out this guy wants to build only in Green Hills, only on the south side of Hillsborough Road. And this guy wants to build in East Nashville, but he doesn't want to go past Gallatin, whatever. And so I started to find dirt that fit what they wanted to do and then bring it to them. And in exchange for that, I would get the back end listings. And I really started blowing that up. And honestly, we became number one in the state. We've been number one in the state in terms of uh, new construction sales and sales for a team six times in 10 years. So I started doing that a lot. And then as that progressed, I started to notice another hole with the builders, which was they were taking all these dirt, taking all these lots, but they, a lot of times their banks would tell them they had to stop. What I learned is that most of these builders were working off of officer's guidance line credits, master facility lines, and they'd have a line of X dollars, but the bank would say, well, only a certain percentage of that can be used for specs. So what was happening is the guy would go out and buy 10 lots. He'd want to do all 10. It was a cul-de-sac in Brentwood or something. And he wants to do all 10 at once. And the bank says, man, you're going to have to do four, four, and two. Well, four, four, and two is going to take him two and a half years by the time he builds it, sells it, and restarts. So I realized there'd be an opportunity to get in with them. And so I went out and got my own lines of credit and put my own cash aside and then approached these guys and said, hey, look, I brought you the deal. Where in some cases, they already had a deal. And you want to do all 10 at once. Your bank's saying you can only do half of them. What if I was to sign on the debt for the other half, pay the bank, do the interest carry, all the things. And, and then you could build all 10 at once. And in exchange for that, I'd like my agents to get to list all 10. And, and so oh, many of them went for that. And we started doing that in 2015 is when I started doing it. But it really started to pick up a lot of steam in 17, 18. And we've been blowing and glowing ever since doing that. And it's become a really big deal. And then from that has become other things where we've had opportunities to get land and learn about entitlements and rezones and that sort of stuff. So, and that's been really fantastic and great for us. So that's a mid-level, low-level explanation, a lot of talking. So sorry, but yeah. No, it's perfect. That's exactly the color I wanted to give. And side note, I think you and I moved back to Nashville or I moved to Nashville for the same reason. Our wives both grew up here and we were deciding this is a better place to raise kids than some of the places we live. So that's kind of a, a funny commonality of story there. But rolling into a little bit of the creativity as you reinvented yourself, right? Because I mean, to be fair, and I think a lot of people are probably asking that question right now is some of the gravy trains you've been on may have changed. And if you don't reinvent yourself, you'll starve. So I got to assume that you probably didn't know what you were doing from a land prospecting perspective when you started. So how did you identify that need? And then how did you position yourself and reinvent yourself to be able to be the expert there? And I mean, really what you did was grab listings upstream, which is fantastic. But how did you position yourself and your team as that expert? You know what I'm saying? Well, I started by just seeing who the players were and where they were building. And I, and I started noticing addresses and where what parts of town they were. And then I started to get really into the zoning code. So I started to look on 
the planning websites, uh, looked at the Nashville Next Plan a lot, looked at um, zoning and how overlays work. And I started to understand what different zonings would allow. And then I started to look at the underlying land use policies and stuff. And I started to realize that if it's zoned for this, but there has, but there's an underlying land use policy of that, or there's maybe an overlay in place that you could potentially do other things, uh, whether it was a rezone or an adaptive reuse. And so I started just by noticing, knowing what builders were building in what area and what price points they were building in, which would allow me to back into what they could pay for dirt. And then once I knew the product, whether it was single family, whether it was HPRs, whether it was multi, whatever it was, once I understood what they were building in the areas they were building in, I was able to identify what zoning classifications on dirt would work for that. And I was able to either go and approach the people that had that dirt and see if they would sell it, if they would bring in the builder. In some cases, I was able to go on the builder's behalf and contract stuff for them. And then they would either be able to flip it up to their bank for a vertical or they would potentially rezone or subdivide it and sell some out to keep some. So I started doing it that way, just sort of learning the business. And I created something for these builders that I think a lot of them didn't even know they needed, which was boots on the ground that understood enough about zoning and codes and planning and land use policy to be able to identify prop property that would work for the product they were looking to put out and be that sort of in between to go and get them. Because those guys are out in their pickup trucks, driving around the circles, hitting drop sites, doing all the things. They design meetings, whatever it is. They don't really have time to do much of what I call that windshield time. And they also don't have time unless they're doing it late at night and taking away from family time though. They don't have that time with working all day to to be able to dig through the computer and kiss all the frogs to find the princes of the dirt, right? So that I sort of created a niche that way. And then next thing I knew, 70 plus builders were utilizing me for that. Yeah, that, that's pretty huge. And I think you, you mentioned it well, you have to kiss a lot of frogs. It's a numbers game, really in anything you're acquiring folks, it's a numbers game to weed through the minutia and stuff that's neither never going to sell or isn't going to hit the zoning requirement or whatever happens. Now, and this may be later, I may be jumping ahead, but did you get involved at this point with like helping them change the paper, change the zoning at this point, yeah. or, or would the builder really take over from there at this moment? Yeah, well, so the builder would do that at first, the builder would do that, but I had the opportunity to learn and sit in on a lot of those. And I had the opportunity as I started to do this stuff for these builders and I started to become sort of an important cog in their wheel, if you will. They started to bring me other things. Hey, I've got this acreage here. I'm wondering about this or, hey, I'm not going to build this over here. It's, it's kind of zoned for this. What, what do you think it'd be worth if we zoned it for that? And they were asking questions where I'm like, I don't really know what it would be worth if you changed the density or the zoning. So I started to look into that. And then I started to understand the process that national, national government goes through for rezones or SPs, which is a specific plan. Yeah. I started to understand that language and, who the, and, and, and I started to understand who the land planners were that did that and take them to lunch, ask questions. And I had a couple of guys that had some swaths of land that they were in the early stages of taking through rezones and doing SPs on. And they kind of brought me in early so I could A, see that process and B, understand like what their end game for that dirt was so that I could go out and try to shop a buyer that would sort of be in position to close contingent on them having a successful rezone. So they kind of knew what they were working for. I would go find a buyer, piece of land is zoned for seven houses now, but they're trying to get it zoned for 70. Buyer says, we'll buy it at X dollars if it is zoned for 70. And then the guy I'm working for knows, okay, I've got this person in the wings waiting to close and I know what the price is. So they kind of know what they're working for. So I got to witness and go through a lot of those and be able to get those deals to come to fruition. And then see them get flipped and they got to see the spreads that some of these guys were making. And I started to realize that a lot of these guys were actually making more money on selling the paper than they were on the building and selling of houses. 
that was really eye-opening for me. I love that you said that. And it's been a, <laughs> it's been something I've noticed as well. Now, as a reminder, Team Quattro, we do not build ground up. That's by design and it may change, but today it's by design. But we've looked at a lot of projects and, and land that comes our way. Like, hmm, I wonder if I would want to build on that. And it's so interesting to see that from if, when you just go look up the the, the city records, right? Or, or the records on the dirt, you're like, holy smokes, that, that dirt traded for like a hundred grand and they're selling it for $3 million right now. And they've owned yeah. it for what, six months, changed the paper or maybe a year. It's amazing. I, I've, what seen some, basis is there. I've seen some insane spreads created in a year or less. I mean, insane. Yeah, and the cool, the interesting, and I guess let's talk about risk for a second because you probably know this a little better than I do. Like, if you're going to play in the land development game, and I don't mean horizontal development, I just mean getting it rezoned, re-entitled, ready for the project. How much risk is there to to picking up the property or even just tying it up and then getting the paper changed or possibly failing at it versus what a builder yeah. takes on, right? Which is the all the hard costs and the the time and things of that sort that go with a bill. Well, it's not for the faint of heart. I'll tell you that much. And there there's a lot of wholesalers out there. So <laughs> when I started doing it in 2013, there were wholesalers, but not like now. I mean, now yeah. I, I feel like I get a, a call from a wholesaler every day. It's got some dirt he's trying to flip. Yeah, He's got a contract for 50 grand. And he's trying to flip to us for 57.5 just to make 7,500. But I mean, there it's cool. everywhere. It's prevalent. No harm, no foul with that. But to answer your question, like, it, there's several ways to do it. The way that I've seen it is the lowest risk. And you do need to make sure you've got the capital to close if it comes to that. Yeah. But the way that I've seen that people have been very successful at it with the least amount of sort of risk and capital at stake, if you will, is to go through to just to contract a piece of land at a price that is at a price that a seller wants, then it's maybe a little bit more than the land is worth right then, based on that zoning. Sellers have because they're getting what they feel is top dollar. And you're in the buyer, and in exchange for the top dollar, you're getting a year and a half, maybe even two years, depending on how big it is, uh, to close the deal. And then you start taking it through the zoning process. And what I've noticed is a lot of the guys will have it in their contracts where they don't have to close with the seller that they're in contract with until final, usually it's 30 business days, 30 days. So that's 30 to 45 days, depending on weekends and business days and calendar days. They don't, have, they don't have to close until the final SP is approved, and then there's a month or so after that. And so in Nashville, if you're doing an SP or a rezone, or even an adaptive reuse, but they, those are quicker. If you're doing an SP or a rezone, you're looking at a minimum of probably six months to a year to get that done. SPs take longer. Rezones are a little shorter because they have to have council readings. So when you go initially, you have your first, second, and third council reading. So the way a lot of these guys structure it is I'm buying your land, Mr. Farmer will say, I'm buying the farmers, me and the developer buying the farmer's land for X dollars. And I don't have to close on the farmer's land until 30 days after the third and final council reading when it becomes a bill and is signed by the mayor. Along the way, as you're pursuing that zoning, you're shopping it out to potential end users. And the goal would be to find somebody that you can have a deal with that if the zoning is successful, they will close at a certain date. And usually those dates are staggered so that you're, because the way it works is the first reading is a preliminary reading. The second reading is where they have a public hearing. That's the one where if anybody is opposed to the project, they can stay from the community or otherwise they can stand up and be heard. That's usually the reading where it's either going to die or go. If you get past the second reading and you still have a recommendation of approval from the council, from planning and from the sponsoring council person, the third reading is more or less a rubber stamp. More or less. There's, there are occasions where that doesn't happen, but for the most part, if you get past second reading, you're not opposed in the public hearing 
and you're on what's called the consent agenda, then the third reading is really a rubber stamp. And then you wait 30 days after that and you are, you're, you're a bill because essentially a rezone or an SP is a little miniature bill. So you get it with the end user that they have to close after that set. They have to close within 30 days of that second reading or in conjunction with the third reading when it is approved with the conditions that it's going to be approved with. You have to close then, but you're closing with the original buyers at least 30 or 45 days thereafter. So essentially yeah. you're doing a double close or you're going ahead and buying it early and knowing they're going to take it up, take it right out. And if something were to happen and after and your buyer that you had that was going to be the end buyer was decided like to walk at the 11th hour, you would still have 30 or 45 days to decide if you're going to perform or not or reflip it or renegotiate your contract. And so they kind of stagger them that way. Do I've noticed? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good way to, to minimize risk. And also, I mean, there's certain things you cannot control, right, in this process. So you have to kind of structure the contract accordingly. Nectar understands that raising capital is labor and time intensive, and we exist to solve that problem for you. Nectar provides fast, flexible, cash flow-based financing for experienced rental owners and operators. Whether you need cash for acquiring properties, portfolios, or you simply need it for ROI generating renovations or expansion of staff, Nectar has your back. Grab your 12-month PNL with debt service and click the link in the show notes below to apply today. Before we go to the, the stuff you're doing today, you used some words earlier that I want to make sure the audience picked up on. One of those is the, uh, the economic plan, right? Or, or the master plan or, or the economic development committee or what it's called, all sorts of different things. But the importance of, of as many times as we preach this on this show, I'm baffled with how many people do not have an understanding of what is going on in their city from a master plan perspective. Let's just maybe chat about the importance of understanding. I just think you have to understand because what, what I've noticed, especially as a real estate broker with a lot of younger brokers coming up and even some established ones is they get a super loose understanding of what zoning means. Like say what I'm, I don't know, I'm seeing in Green Hills right now, most of Green Hills on this side of Hillsboro is going to be zoned R20 or R40. So I get a basic understanding that, oh, okay, R20 means I can tear down an old ranch house and I can put two HPRs up. And as long as there's... 20,000 square feet or more in the lot, I can tear down and put up two HPRs, which is a horizontal property regime. Essentially, it's a duplex. And as long as I each take up 10,000 square feet, I can do that. And that is basically true, but it's not always the case. There are a lot of other things that come into account. Uh, lot compatibility, frontage, setbacks, easements, overlays, uh, utilities. There's just so many things. And so what happens is Somebody takes 10 minutes to go on national.gov and read that, hey, R20 zoning means one or two family. Okay, I got it. And then they run around town telling every builder that they understand it. And hey, you should buy this lot. It's zoned R20. Yeah, we can pay a million dollars for a tear down of Green Hills because you can split it 500 grand aside and you can spend a million five and build two houses. You're in each one for two and they'll sell for three. Look, there's two million dollars. It's going to be great. It's just not the case all the time. So you have to take that next step to understand what the base zoning is, but then what the land units use policy is, what if any overlays and how those are coming to contact with the zoning. You have to, and then you have to understand things like street setbacks, connector streets versus collector streets, corner lots versus interior lots, utility easements. I mean, there's, you know, if a power line's on your side of the road or the other side of the road, there's going to be a height variance because of the power line for egress. There's just so many things that take a much deeper knowledge and understanding to actually be able to go out and and speak to a client about what you can do there, especially clients that don't do their own due diligence. Maybe they're out of state or maybe they're too busy 
and they're they're relying on you to make a huge financial decision, and then they come to find out that the lot is not usable for what they thought and what you said. So I think that's important to really to dig deep on that stuff and really understand it. Yeah, don't be that buyer, by the way, who doesn't uh, who distrusts the diligence. Do your diligence always. They're yes. the two most important words in this business. Let me tell you how I know that. So, and, and I guess to just to touch on what you're doing now a little bit, but you, you mentioned since you kind of became their direct land provider, if you will. Now you're also you've also solved the whole. Hey, let me help kind of finance these these builders so that the there's no limitation to how many homes they can be building at one time in exchange for the listings themselves. So, so really from the source, you've kind of taken over the new construction retail aspect of it. Yep. Yeah. In some facets, I just realized that there was an opportunity there. You had good builders that do good product that I'm already working with anyways, that I'm already representing them on many of their backend sales that had the capacity to do more, that wanted to do more, and that were hindered by either their bank or their debt to income ratio at any given time in their business or a myriad of things. And I realized I had the opportunity to come in and I kind of thought to myself, and this was the pitch I kind of made the bank when I approached my bank and said, Hey, I'm going to start doing specs. Like, I think I'm your perfect client. I'm already like, your, your clients are already using me as the person that helps them vet out dirt and vet out what product to put there. Should it be traditional, modern garage, no garage, three-story, two-story, what are we building? Like there, I'm already the person that finds in the dirt. I'm already the person that works with them on what it should, what should be put on the dirt. And I'm already the person that sells the back end. Like I'm an ideal investor for you as a bank because you're, the, what's funny is as I was asking to start doing this with the bank, I would have a conversation with them and we were trying to decide what a credit line might look like or this or that. And then the five minutes later, they're calling me on another client because like I'm the person they trust to say, do I think that the client's product is going to sell for what the client thinks it's going to sell so that they know whether or not they should do the loan. So I, I, I felt like I was like an ideal client for them. And luckily, knock on wood today, I haven't had one boo in terms of something not selling for a while. We've had some not sell for as much or not as quick or whatever, but like they've all been profitable and they've all been within an appropriate art. We have, we do performers, good, better, and best, whatever. Like yeah. they've all been at least the good, if not better or best. Pretty good track record. <laughs> Let's kind of jump into what you're doing now, Brandon. I mean, there, there's some things you're working on. I know you're pretty excited about, maybe particularly on the, on the build to rent aspect. You've, you've set up this pipeline, right? Where you've become an expert and your firm has become an expert in land use and land repurposing and things of that sort. And you figured out how to really guide the pipeline of new inventory through your sales process by adding value to the builders. Well, that in turn generates a good amount of cash and cash flow via commissions and things of that sort on this business. So let's talk about what you're doing on the other aspects of your life. Cause I know you're pretty excited about some of that stuff. Yeah, I'm just, I'm obviously looking at how I can create more value and how I can sort of level up. I do have big aspirational goals for long-term for my family. I'm I'm really on a path to try to create some generational wealth for my family. That's something that no one in my family has ever really had. And so one thing that's always interested me is how these guys do these large build-to-rent projects, whether there's some divisions that are built around or whether there's more traditional garden style apartments or mid-rises, whatever. That idea, and it really, what really struck me was I had a rather large tax bill last year and I was lamenting to my CPA about it. And he kind of explained to me that, hey, let's just say you had, because I've got some land, I'll get to that. Let's just say you had built this building and it was built, the depreciation on this building and the way we could do the cost segregation and the tax credits you would get for building it with uh, certain environmental standards, those things would offset most of your taxes. And I'm like, so you're telling me, had I had the building built, had it been leased out and stabilized and had we appreciated it, depreciated it correctly, my tax bill would be almost nothing. Oh, 
okay, like, well, that's, I want to get to that. So, so I've been buying land and I've been entitling it and working to use the proceeds from my other business, the spec business and my brokerage business to, to pay the land off. So now I have, a, I'm sitting in a position where I have almost a thousand paid for lots and they're zoned for multifamily. They're zoned for, there's some RM zoning, there's some MUL zoning. So I can essentially do large groups of townhomes. I can do apartment buildings, traditional stacked flat apartment buildings. I can do mixed use with the retail and commercial and, and restaurant components. So that's exciting to me to figure out how that next level will look like because the hard part's been done from a standpoint of getting the dirt paid for so there's no debt and monthly note and then uh, getting the zoning in place. So my, to answer your question more succinctly, my, my next step is to figure out how to actually get those buildings built, get them stabilized and start to utilize um, the tools of, of, uh, of depreciation and um, cost segregation. I love that, Brandon. And in in your kind of thought process, we're talking about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago in Atlanta. You know, why in your mind do you think it makes more sense to to acquire the land, pay it off, and then build it rather than just go buy the assets specifically? I mean, we were having a basis conversation. I think the way you said it was. Very, yeah. You know. Well, first of all, I think, I mean, you're a great example. Both ways work. Obviously, it's been a time-tested, tried-and-true thing of, of buying something and, 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 and fixing it up and it's worth more and, and you'll get a better maintenance program and, and making it class C to B or whatever. I mean, in my uncle, it's funny, I didn't even, I've never told you this, but my uncles um, do that in three states and they have several thousand doors and they basically go into town and they buy the worst thing in the best neighborhood they can find and they fix it up soup to nuts. And then of course they, and they stabilize it. They kick out the $400 a month tenants and get in the $1,100 a month tenants and they, and they refi and all the things. I, I don't really know that world and the world that I've know and that I've been learning is the other side, which is creating a similar amount of equitable spread by getting dirt cheap or cheaper and creating entitlements, which have a value and then using those, the value of those entitlements as a portion of the down payment and capital needed for the next step, which is the actual construction of it. What I like about it is if you buy land cheap and you rezone it, you've created a certain amount of value there, which is now locked into the deal. That return, if you want to call it, is locked into the deal. So you've made money essentially on paper one way. Then you go to build it and it's finished, but you're not selling it. And so you've created another round of value and equity because you have what the developer cost is and then what the market cost is. And you're not going to capture that when it, which a developer would normally build something turnkey and then sell it. So you've got the dirt value locked in. Now you've got the value of the finished units cost to, cost to deliver versus value locked in. And then you get them stabilized and rented. And then you've got the appreciation over time, which it goes up, plus minus the depreciation and the cost sake. So at the end of the day, say 15 years later, you go to sell that. You're going to get the original value of the dirt that you had titled. You're going to get the original value of the unrealized monies that the developer at the time would have gotten. You're going to get all the appreciation. You've enjoyed whatever the cash flow is along the way, and you've been able to depreciate it and cost segregate it on your taxes. So to me, it's like a four-way win is how I'm looking at it in my head. Yeah, And that's why I'm interested in doing it that way. And you're doing it in your own backyard versus having to go necessarily where the deals are, which may or may not be in your market or even your state. Like my uncles, as I was mentioning, I mean, they're all, and I know you've, you're in six or seven states. I mean, you got to go everywhere to find the deals. I, do. I can create the same idea right here, 20 minutes from my house. 
Yeah. And I wanted you to say it just that way, because folks, this is a different school of thought, right? And what, what I do not advocate, and, and because I've, I've just, I've seen the basis step ups, I do not advocate if you're going to try to develop or you are a developer, just going and buying land that's already ready to go and then stacking your basis on top of it and trying to hold it. Because usually you've lost a big chunk there in the very beginning. But if you are acquiring the land, preferably at a pretty good basis, because that's not really usable at the point that you acquire it, you're then going through the trouble of getting it to the point where it can be used for highest and best use of, it, of the asset. You then are a local player and you probably are going to be able to build things at a better basis using local guys rather than national guys that some of the big guys have to use. So you're going to have a better pound for pound into the unit or into the building. And then you have this pretty new asset that guess what? After you get to enjoy a little cash out refi, some cash flow, some depreciation, you go sell it 10 years down the road. What do people love to buy more than anything? A value add property. Well, when it's 10 years old, it's now a value add property. So it's like, it's a great cycle. If you start at the right level, I think that's really the juice you can squeeze out of this stuff. So Brandon, I love the thought, man. That's my hope. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the numbers make sense too. So well, Brandon, we are right at the 30 minute mark. So I'm going to take it over to the Quattro questions. Are you ready, brother? I'll do my best. Let's go. I'm getting good at this. I'm only uh, seven seconds past the mark. So that's pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> so awesome. first question, what is your superpower? Could be life or business and how does it serve you well in life? I think my superpower is my um, ability to multitask effectively. I, I talk about it all the time that I'm able to do many things that for someone else might be, each of the things might be their full-time job or could be considered or construed as a full-time job. And I can do them all with a reasonable amount of efficiency and effectiveness. That's a pretty big one. That's called high capacity, brother. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah. I have really high capacity. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be better than you or anybody else would do if it was one at a time. But I would say like I do everything well, maybe not great, but I can do them all at once. That's great. And let's take, uh, let's, let's flip the point over. So what is your biggest failure to date? Could be life or business. And what's your biggest lesson from it? Gosh, man, I don't know. I think that's a, uh, We've all got so many, don't we? <laughs> it's a layer detailed question. I think for me, I wish I had started for myself sooner. I made a lot of people a lot of money and a lot of people that I'm in relationship with in this business, because it's a small world, are younger than me. They're either way older than me and they're just, they're like big fish or they're younger than me and they just got started earlier. So I wish I'm 41. I've really only been doing this, I guess, since I was, so 2015, what's that? Eight years. So that's, I can't do math. I guess that's 30, 30. 33, 34, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish I had started in my 20s is really the point. I, I wasn't until I got to my 30s. It wasn't until I got to 31 that I'm like, I really need to be doing more for myself. And it wasn't until I was 33, 34 that I was actually able to do that. And I wish I just started right out of college. I love that. And by the way, everyone is good at math, except when they have that little recording light in their face. So nobody can do math on the air. Don't even try. <laughs> just starting earlier and believing in myself. And I'll say one more thing. I don't mean to, to yabber here, but oh. I wish that I had invested more in myself. And I don't just mean like school, but like like the 1% club that we're doing, yeah. that kind of stuff. I wish I'd have found that 10 years ago. And I think investing in yourself and believing in yourself and having that self, the belief in yourself is really what I'm getting at. It's so important. It took me a long time to, I mean, everyone can say it, but it took me a long time to truly believe that, I, that it should be that I am the one. It took me a long time to, to, to believe what I was saying to everybody else because it sounds good to tell clients and people. It took me a long time to believe that for myself. Yeah. And folks, I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of allude to what he's talking about there. So Google 1% Club, Tommy Newberry. The idea is... How do you get in a room of people where iron sharpens iron? 
And how do you devote yourself to intentional and relentless growth and realize that mindset makes all the difference? That could be a commercial for Tommy right there. It, it really yeah, should we should, for that. Can we get residuals on that? Yeah, <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to clip that and send it to him. I think I just sold him like at least a thousand members. But anyway, the point is that's the room you got to be in, folks, whether it's this or something else, find that room because until you have other pieces of iron sharpening you and you in turn sharpening them, that's the community you need to grow and be better. You're the sum average of the five people you're around. So- Next question, Brandon. We hold philanthropy near and dear to our hearts here. It is one of our four core pillars after all. And I love to just mention to our you know, guests on the show that every time we mention what is your philanthropic venture, a lot of times people will go and give on your behalf. So how do you give back in terms of time, talents, and treasures in this world? Yeah, we actually have my, my wife, uh, if you go to our, our website, knocksoberstores.com, we have a, a section about that. My, my wife is, is uh, adopted and a big adoption advocate. So we, we do a lot of stuff there. And the church that we attend is, is big on that too, Church of the City, uh, Franklin. So uh, my wife was recently on the board. She just rolled off, but she Tennessee Alliance for Kids. We do a lot of stuff for kids in foster care and kids that are aging out of foster care. Uh, and that's a big thing to me. And then another thing that is important to me is I come from a little a military family. So stuff with veterans is important. And, and education, the more, the older I'm getting, and the more I'm realizing how, what just the little bit of education that I'm seeking post-college is doing for me, the more I'm realizing that education is something that's important to give back to so that other people have the opportunity to go out and pursue something like what we're getting to do every day. I love that, brother. And I didn't realize you were at COTC, Church of the City, huh? That, yeah, 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 right there. Yeah, right there. That, that's a great that's a great facility here in Nashville. I actually have the COTC Daily video thing, the, the Bible study on my phone. It's pretty cool. It comes yeah. out at 5 a.m. every morning. Yeah. yeah. Actually, my buddy, our, our mutual buddy, Chad Schultz, actually has that. John, that? Yeah. yeah, he got me on that. Yeah, I hit him up too. I almost never miss every now and then. But. Yeah, I love it, dude. I love it. Well, last question. This one's pretty tough. Are you ready? I'm going to lob it yeah. up there for you. Right. What is the best way to get in touch with you and your team? Should someone want to reach oh, out? Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. I love the plug. Yeah. So uh, you can see my little shirt here. So we're the Knox team. If you're looking, for, if you're looking to buy, sell, or invest, or you want to learn about how you can use real estate to help create generational family wealth for your family, KnoxOpenStores.com. My name is Brandon Knox. So anybody on our team, it's their first name at KnoxOpenStores.com. There's an S on opens and an S on doors. It's plural. So Brandon at Knox Opens Doors, Beth, my wife at Knox Opens Doors, and we're all there to help you. And then if you're interested more in the land and time and investment side, you can go to landgroupusa.com and see what we do there. And folks, as always, if you're driving or running or doing whatever you do while you listen to podcasts, just scroll down when you're done with the episode. This will be right there for your clicking pleasure in the show notes. And with that, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show today, spitting some value to our listeners. I appreciate you, brother. Hey, man. I love it. Thank you, Chad. Do you manage multiple legal entities? Is your data scattered across various unsecure systems? Is your team spending too much time on manual processes? Do you struggle to meet reporting deadlines? Simplify entity management and compliance with Entity Keeper. Entity Keeper helps easily manage entities, build and maintain complex organizational charts, and track filing deadlines, all in one secure, cloud-based platform. And with automated alerts and centralized document storage, you'll stay two steps ahead of compliance deadlines. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and book a demo. Man, family, I hope you enjoyed that episode. So much good nuggets on, or so many good nuggets, rather. English is hard. To talking about how you go about, in a less risky fashion, developing land. There was such so many good nuggets in the story. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you have something you can take away from it. Again, scroll down, reach out to this guy. He loves to talk about this stuff. And if you're a developer, if you're looking to buy land, 
or if you just want to talk Bill Durant stuff, I know he would love to talk with you, especially if you're here in Middle Tennessee, go have lunch with him at his office. It's a great spot. So look, if you got any value out of the show, like us, subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend, just do something to interact with the show because it's the only way you can pay it forward and really make sure someone else gets the same value that you did. Okay. Love you all. This has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway Podcast. Until next time, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.